6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 3. Well, we'll start with the book of Ezra. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, along with Esther, incidentally, all together, cover about a hundred years, and they close the Old Testament history, the historical books. Uh, Many people feel that the history between the close of these books and the New Testament, the 400 years that are involved, are called the silent years. But they overlook the fact that those years are in the Bible. They're written in advance. If you look at Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 through uh, 35, it lays out the the tensions between the Ptolemies, the Seleucid Empire, that cover those four centuries, for what it's worth. But... um, It's interesting that the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles closed with the southern kingdom going into captivity. As you may recall, about almost a century earlier, the northern kingdom got uh, not only uh, uh, captured, but uh, uh, distributed, dissolved. So there is no more northern kingdom. And again, don't get confused by these myths about the ten lost tribes, because the faithful in the northern kingdom had migrated south, and the unfaithful, the idolaters of the southern kingdom, in large measure, migrated north. So there's an infusion. You'll begin to see some of that even when they return uh, from captivity, as we'll see here. But um, the, what we call these books, after the Babylonian captivity, the post-exile. The captivity of Babylon, of the, Judah, uh, the, the, the southern kingdom, in, in, in uh, the Babylonian captivity is sometimes called the exile. There are certain prophets that are pre-exile prophets. During the exile, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Jeremiah, there are certain prophets that are post-exile. In other words, they're prophets that primary ministry is after they return from the captivity. Habakkuk and uh, Zechariah, and the Italian prophet, Malachi, is, comes in. Um, yeah. So we're going to discover... Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, as they come back, they're going to be they're going to be both under the protection and also the assistance, interestingly enough, of three Persian kings: Cyrus, Darius, or Darius, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and Artaxerxes. Those three guys. There's more kings, but those are the key guys, and they're very prominent in their participation in God's program here. And there's going to be terrific leadership from Zerubbabel on the civil side and Joshua, the priest Joshua, not the Joshua of the Pentateuch, this is a different Joshua, he's a priest, and of course Ezra and so forth. And the big challenge of the book of Ezra is to come back to, they're going to be released and come back to the land and build the temple. The first six chapters of the ten chapters that make up Ezra covers events in the first two or three years of the reign of Cyrus. We'll talk about Cyrus in a minute. And uh, and also the first six years of Darius. The last four chapters will record events of the first part of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes I is a very, very key uh, king for for our interests here. There's a whole bunch of kings, Persian kings, that are not even mentioned. Cambyses, Myrtus, and uh, 
uh, there's one verse about Xerxes, and that's what that's he was the king during Esther. That's a whole other thing we'll talk about when we get to that appropriate place. There's also some very important historical events that are not mentioned. The Persians made two huge but very futile efforts to conquer Greece that set the, set the uh, revenge that Alexander will later repay and sets up the Greek Empire and so forth. Um, we're going to discover, as Ezra opens, that the uh, Jews have just seen the overthrow of Babylon. We're going to talk a little bit about that before we get into the chapter. That's uh, the, the, the overthrow of this hated Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. Um, by Cyrus the Persian. And uh, Daniel has just been uh, put into place of honor by Darius the Mede. Daniel's a strange guy. Daniel is deported early in the captivity as a teenager. And he rises to prominence in the Babylonian Empire through the interpretation of the dream and so forth. But when Babylon is conquered by its enemies, Daniel again, now much older, you know, in his twilight years, rises to power again. Very interesting, one of the most interesting careers you'll find on the planet Earth, the career of Daniel. And uh, so I encourage you to study his life if you haven't. And he's going to end up being appointed um, uh, to rule over the Babylonian territories, uh, 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 in, in a sense. He's going to be right. And it, uh, that's where the the uh, he's going to be put in charge of the hereditary priesthood that sets up the king, the, the Magi. And... Uh, very interesting background. But let's talk a little bit about, we obviously closed the historical, the previous historical books by uh, the tribe of Ju- the, the house of hold of Judah being taken into captivity and uh, by Babylon. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel during that captive, during that time and subsequent preached that they should, that this is the hand of God and so on. They, tr- they threw Jeremiah in prison to treat him as a traitor, but he was right. He was telling what God told him to tell him. But they all do, as you know, they went through the three deportations we talked about before. The Babylon captivity was predicted to be 70 years. But now we get to near the end of those 70 years, and a guy by the name of Cyrus II, he later becomes known as Cyrus the Great, and he's the founder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire that continued for two centuries before Alexander the Great took him. So we're in the book of Ezra, session one, chapters one through three. And as you look at the timeline, we're going, we're obviously moving after the, at the tail end of the monarchy. We're in the post-exile period. And uh, uh, we've seen the Babylonian Empire rise. We're going to see it fall. It'll be followed by the Persian Empire. It'll, it'll be followed by the Greek Empire. And the span of our books will embrace both of those and to some extent, because Artaxerxes will, will be uh, the beginning of the Greek uh, period. And then, of course, comes the Roman Empire. We get to the New Testament period. And uh, it's interesting. Remember, in the Greek period uh, is when the Septuagint translation, the Old Testament was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ was born. So all of this stuff is in black and white three centuries before Christ's ministry. That'll become very important as we get into some of the other details. And the last time we talked about the fact the Babylonian captivity took part was in three sieges, and the servitude of the nation starts with the first siege. It was going to be 70 years. And it is terminated by Cyrus conquering Babylon and issuing a decree. We want to, talk, we want to understand that a little bit before we get into Ezra. And I think, uh, and of course, that the decree of Cyrus is when the Persians conquer the battle and starts the, the period we call the Persian Empire. Now, the third siege 
is the sea, that is caused the desolations of Jerusalem, the city. Both the servitude of the nation and the, servit- uh, the desolation of Jerusalem were both predicted to be 70 years long, and many people jumped to the conclusion by not being precise that they're simply synonyms. They both, the desolation of Jerusalem, the Babylonian captivity is, 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 is spoken of as 70 years, but it's actually in two parts. The servitude of the nation, which starts the first siege, ends with the decree of Cyrus. It's, it's 70 years to the day. The desolations of Jerusalem started with the third siege. When they kept rebelling, Nebuchadnezzar finally had it with him and he leveled the city, took him, and, and uh, that started the desolations of Jerusalem. And it will have its terminal, the termination, again, 70 years to the day, by the decree of Artaxerxes. And that triggers the prophecy that Gabriel gave Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, which triggers this fabulous 70 weeks prophecy, which nails the exact day that the Messiah would present himself to Jerusalem as a king. Very, very exciting stuff, actually. Well, Chronicles, of course, takes us up to the decree of Cyrus, Ezra is going to take us from Cyrus uh, into uh, uh, up to almost the decree of Artaxerxes. That's really uh, occurs in the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. So that gives you a rough feeling of the chronology here. And uh, Esther, incidentally, occurs between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. It won't be mentioned. It's a separate book. But when you start putting the pieces together, you'll discover that the whole episode in the Persian Empire that constitutes the drama of the book of Esther occurs after chapter 6, before chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. And Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah are, uh, are uh, prophets of the exile. Well, Jeremiah is actually even earlier. Haggai, Zechariah, and later Malachi will be the prophets, uh, the so-called post-exile prophets, for what it's worth. Okay, Cyrus the Great. He's the guy that established the Medo-Persian Empire because his, he was half of both. His father, Cambyses I, was king of Anshan, uh, that's east, uh, eastern Elam, that's, he's Persian, in other words, we would call Persian. His mother, Mandane, was the daughter of Astyages, the king of Media. So Cyrus was actually had blood of both the Medes and the Persians. When you say Medes, by the way, you might think Kurds, because there's, uh, there, there are roots here that are in common. Now, in about 550 B.C., he attacked his father-in-law, the highly corrupt Estiagus, and uh, he had, he had uh, the, the, his father-in-law had, had alienated one of his key generals, so his general threw in with uh, uh, Cyrus. But anyway, he captured Ecbatana, the capital, without a battle. You're going to discover, if you read his career, again and again and again, he conquers these places without firing a shot, so to speak. He had a very enlightened policy, too. He gave respect to the gods that his enemies worshipped. He didn't, he didn't entrust upon them his culture, and he, the, therefore he was often welcomed by people um, uh, that were uh, <laughs> favoring a regime change, if you will. So by some of these successes, he welded the Medes and the Persians into a unified nation that continued for 200 years. We call it the Persian Empire. Some of your Bible things will call it the Medo-Persian Empire. Same thing. Now, one of the one of the things that uh, captures our interest is the conquest of Babylon. On October twelfth of five thirty nine B.C., his general Ugaburu captured Babylon without a Babel. It's very important for you to understand this because most Bible handbooks and Bible dictionaries don't have this perception. It's very important. What the Persians did, the general sent up a division upriver. The Euphrates came through, and 
bisected the city of Babylon. And the water from the Euphrates served as a moat around the city and also provided the city water in case of a siege. And what uh, the Persians did is send up a, uh, they had captured, they got control of the canals, the widespread canal system in, in, in that region, in the plain of Shinar and so forth. They, at, at a preset signal, they diverted the, the Euphrates, lowering the water level. Herodotus, the Greek historian, gives us all the details. They, uh, they, uh, diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver, so that the water level dropped, as Herodotus says, to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, so they could wade, they could wade in under the, the, uh, the, the gates that were protecting the city. And that made the flood defenses useless, and it enabled them to march to the riverbed to enter by night. There were residents in Babylon that didn't even know it had been taken over for three days. I want you to understand that Babylon was not destroyed, it was captured. It's a big difference. Don't confuse the fall of Babylon with the destruction of Babylon. And uh, most people do. Many of your commentaries and stuff fail to perceive this difference. And if you to, to sort of underscore what I'm saying, if you go to the British Museum in London, go see the cylinder or the steel, if you want to, of Cyrus. And on this is a, a inscription. Quite an extensive one, but the key words, it says, Without any battle he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. This documents the fact that Cyrus allowed the slaves that he had captured when he captured Babylon to go home. In fact, he not only allowed it, he paid them to go and he donated money for the temple. It's going to be a very key part of the opening part of Ezra. It has profound significance for you and I. It has profound significance on the immediate uh, things you're going to read about in the in the news uh, uh, papers over the coming months. And I'll show you why. This is the fall of Babylon. Now you have it detailed for you from inside. You have an insider's report, not from MSNBC, but from Daniel, because at that time. It was the king's, the, the, the king, uh, Nabonidus was a loser. He, he liked to, he did things abroad. He was, he didn't even run the place. So he left his profligate son in charge, Belshazzar. And he, he actually was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. But he, instead, as, as the Persians are approaching, he doesn't, everybody assumed that Babylon was impregnable. That's always a fatal strategy to underestimate your enemies. So instead of defending, he throws a party for a thousand nobles. Think about that for a moment. The, the room that he throws this party in has been rebuilt by Saddam Hussein. He had archaeologists uh, uh, several decades ago verify the foundations. He rebuilt Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and the room that this event took place is there. He used it for affairs of state in 1987. Now the Persian army is on the near horizon. As they're throwing this party... They see, everything quiets down when they see the fingers of a man's hand right on the wall. You know, all through the book of Daniel, there are events that have led, caused idioms in our language. One of those is that he's seen the handwriting on the wall. We've all heard that. Most people don't know where that comes from. It comes from Daniel chapter 5. Now, the experts couldn't interpret what was on the wall. The queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, is around. She says, you know, there is a guy, he's in retirement, but there is a guy that had a gift for that. They called Daniel out of retirement. 
And they promise him all kinds of things, and, and uh, he declines. Now, they don't know that while this is going on, the Persian army was able to slip through and conquer Babylon while this is going on, but they don't know that. And by the way, this raises a question. You might be interested in this. We talked about this when we talked about Isaiah 7 and so forth. Are there hidden codes in the Bible? And, and there's several verses of the Bible that indicate there are, and there's several, a number of discoveries that are not new. They were discovered by the rabbis centuries ago and are being rediscovered with the use of computers. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor or duty of kings to search out a matter. Proverbs 25.2. We talked about Albam before. That's where you take the Hebrew letter and fold it over itself. And, and use transpositions, substitute the, the matching pair to encrypt, a very simple form of tra- what they call transposition code. There's another form of encryption called atbash, and that's where you fold it back, you put the second half backwards. So you now have the, the, the uh, 22 letters of Hebrew folded back on itself, and so you take the first letter and substitute the last letter, the, the second letter, the next to the last. So you do substitutions the same way. It's called atbash after the four letters that make up the, the corner. But the point is, the Talmud indicates that what happened in Daniel 5 was that what, the reason they couldn't read it on the wall, it was encrypted using atbash. Now, is that correct or not? I don't know, but that's the, that's the Talmudic or rabbinical belief, the handwriting of the wall. So what they saw on the wall, remember, uh, remember all languages go towards Jerusalem. So Hebrew, like Aramaic, Sanskrit, everything, all the nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. And all nations that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Latin, Greek, whatever. Well, uh, so this is what they saw on the wall, couldn't interpret it, but if you interpret it using Atbash, it says, many, many tekel ufarsin. Now, many people get, well, the, 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 the word many, bear in mind, both the Aramaic, this is all in Aramaic, incidentally, the Aram, everything from Daniel 2 to 7 is in Aramaic because it all deals with Gentiles. Up to chapter 2 and after chapter 7, it's in Hebrew. But in any case, uh, Aramaic is like Hebrew, it, the vowel, it only has vowels. The, the, excuse me, it only has consonants. The vowels are inferred. But many means numbered or reckoned. And what that implies is God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Or we might say your number is up is what it implies, okay? In fact, you've heard that expression too, okay? Many, many, uh, then tekel means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting is the implication. And the last word is perez. You'll notice in the King James it says euphorcin, that is just the, uh, the connector and, and the plural form of it. It doesn't, uh, that's not obvious unless you to know the Aramaic. But anyway, the word is peres, which means broken or divided. And so Daniel interprets this, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What's not obvious is the word peres, if you infer an E sound, it means divided. If you infer an A sound, it is the word for Persians. And so that's the encryption that was uh, on the wall that Daniel interprets. And of course, uh, that very night, Belshazzar is slain. Now, there's another aspect of this. About ten days later, after they conquered Babylon, that was done by Cyrus's general and his armies. But when you get to the big day, Cyrus makes his grand entrance. He's conquered Babylon, of all things. That was, the, that was a, you know, a, a incredible symbol. And he makes his grand entrance. And according to Josephus, he tells us that Cyrus, when he makes his entrance, is greeted by Daniel. And Daniel presents him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, which contained a personal letter to him, addressing him by name, even though it was written 150 years earlier. Isn't that wild? 
And by the way, that letter is in your Bible. And we'll take a look at it. Isaiah died 150 years before Cyrus was born. It's interesting that Isaiah predicts the fall of Babylon before Babylon rose to be an empire. He just he, he talks about the Persians before there's a Persian empire. Very interesting. The letter to Cyrus, you'll find this in Isaiah. It, it, it starts near the end of chapter 44, the early part of chapter 45. That saith to the deep, be dry, I will dry up thy rivers. That must have caught Cyrus's attention. That was a strategy by which he conquered Babylon. That saith of Cyrus, there's his name. Oh, wow, there's my name, he says. He is my shepherd, this is God speaking, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to thy temple, thy foundation shall be laid. A couple of hundred miles to the west, Jerusalem's in rubble. It's been that way for 70 years. Well, actually, yeah, actually about 50 years, excuse me. But anyway, you get the idea. And uh, it continues, the opening verse of chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord, get this, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall be not be shut. It's exactly what he found. That's, that, that's what allowed him to capture this place. Now, by the way, I have to share with you something a little bit sort of private, and I hope I won't offend anybody here. But whenever I anticipate teaching in detail Daniel chapter 5, I usually find an excuse beforehand to tell my favorite story about Lord Nelson. Yeah, some of you, check, you know where I'm going with this, right? And it's just a silly, silly story about Lord Nelson, and uh, who was the great, you know, British admiral. And uh, one day the midshipman comes into his cabin and says, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there's a Spanish galleon off the port bow. He says, sound general quarters, get me my red waistcoat. Puts on his red waistcoat, they sound general quarters, they engage a Spanish galleon. And I got this all wrong, but it shouldn't be. I always tell about Spanish, it should really be Napoleon's, because I'm off, what, 100 years or something. Anyway, his enemy, anyway, he, he, he sinks the, the enemy ship. About a week later, the midshipman comes in again. Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there is there are two enemy warships off the starboard uh, quarter. Sound General Quarters, get me a red waistcoat. So he gets his red waistcoat. Sound General Quarters, they engage it, they sink both ships. Next morning, the midshipman comes in. Lord Nelson, sir, request permission to ask a question. He says, granted, son, that's the way you learn. He said, I notice every time we go into battle, you always ask for your red waistcoat. Why is that, sir? That's a good question, son. You see, in case I should be hit during the battle, I don't want the crew distracted or disheartened by any side of my blood. Oh, it made sense. You got the thing. Well, it's about a week later. Midshipman comes in and said, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, the entire Spanish Armada is on the horizon. He says, Sound General Quarters, give me my brown britches. <laughs> Just a silly story. But see, it sets up something I want to point out. When you're in Daniel chapter 5, and the handwriting on the wall starts, everybody is panicked. And it says of Belshazzar that his loins were loosed and one knee smoked against the other. (laughs) Now, they always talk about the King James. You don't get any more graphic than that. But this expression, his loins were loosed, doesn't communicate to most of us what it's talking about. 
And so when I'm teaching Daniel 5, I usually say, what he's doing, he's asking for his brown britches. And you get the picture a little more clear to that way, don't you? You with me? Now you wonder, Chuck, what are you getting into all this for? I'll tell you why. Because that was a fulfillment of prophecy. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> I never miss a chance to see prophecy fulfilled. You come here to Isaiah 45, verse 1. Let's look at what God had written in Isaiah 150 years ago. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Yeah, that's a strange word to use of a Gentile king, by the way. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. Indeed he did, one after the other. And I will loose the loins of kings. I believe that when Cyrus read that, he must have chuckled. What that tells you is the event a few days earlier when, when Belshazzar embarrassed himself in public was a proverb among the people. It wasn't just a subtle technicality recorded in the book of Daniel chapter 5. It became an embarrassment that was widely noted. And I'm sure it got to Cyrus. And here he's, he's God saying, I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut, and so forth. He goes on, by the way. God says, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and will cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. Notice this. That thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Now can you imagine the impact on Cyrus to find a letter that was written, obviously, generations before this ancient scroll, calling him by name, describing the strategy by which he conquered Babylon, and saying, because of all that, you're going to let my people go build their temple. Cyrus was impressed, wouldn't you be? And history records what he did. We're going to see that. See, you'll understand Ezra better if you're with this background. God can say, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ezra. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series... May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.